Welcome back to Roll for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart of the center of enterprise IT. This week, it's just Lilac and me. Zach is busy with a personal thing. Congratulations, Zach. And Mike sends his apologies as well. But uh, we thought we'd talk about our top five technologies, but not our favorites, the ones that we wish never, ever work. So, hey, Lilac, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a, a really... Uh, a lark of ours, right? When we were talking, what should we talk about this week? And I was thinking of, of sort of hate podcasting, a set of technologies that we maybe, maybe didn't lend us in the right direction. And um, I dug first really far deep into the archives of my mind. And the first one that just came to mind for me was BitNet. And I don't okay, know. Okay. You're going to have to unpack that one for me. I know, right? This was, so firstly, I'm just, a, I'm a little bit older than Dominic. <laughs> and, and that little bit was the difference between having BitNet experience or not. And I went to a delightful um, undergraduate institution. Uh, shout out to the Lutes, um, the mighty fighting Lutes. Um, but the Lutes didn't have the means or the interest in being part of the original ARPANET internet as we knew it um that was an apparently either expensive or beyond their their means and so they were part of the bitnet internet now this is green screen internet right this was irc levels of internet um bitnet had an irc alternative and i would just say all of this had very much the flavor of um uh, when your mom buys you the, the the discount snack foods at the supermarket and you're thinking these don't taste like real goldfish at all at all <laughs> and so that was our experience i i don't know so was this like dial-up or was it some academic backbone that you had to sign up for yeah so it, i dialed into my local university um uh server and then this connected me to you know five other institutions around the world <laughs> through the- <laughs> we use this thing right, right, right. exactly um and and you know it, it was it was both global and sparse i would say mm. um the thing that's interesting about technologies like this you know you might initially i was like why are you hating on bitnet i mean i'm sure the people who built it were were real and and honorable humans um it, it did, but I also don't think that it moved anything forward, right? Like when we think about um, Betamax or other technologies that were sort of in neck and neck races with the one that ultimately won, there was there's that understanding of having like the chasing technology making the primary technology better by virtue of it pursuing different elements of feature sets and so forth. I don't think BitNet did anything. Like, ah, okay, <laughs> it was just there. And I think the challenge with it is that um, I honestly it's sort good of enough. Did, it's done. I, in a way, like I didn't join the internet until years later because BitNet foiled me. <laughs> I, mm. I I'm kind of angry about that. Um, also, the chat was really boring. Oh, my God. <laughs> IRC was real. Mm. You know, I, I never went to an IRC. I've told this story before, but for any listeners who are not aware, uh, I grew up in Italy, and in Italy, lo- even local uh, phone calls were charged. So BBSs and the like never really took off here, especially the idea of a BBS there was a, a long distance call instead of a local call, forget about it. So anything that predated, uh, you know, TCP IP and the web, uh, you had to be really, really into things. And my friends and I, we just sneak and edit stuff around. That that was what we did. IRC was nothing. By the time I got to university, it was all graphical web stuff. We did have Jarnet because I went to university in the UK. Uh, joint academic network, I think it was. Uh, we got some terrible trouble because they made the horrible mistake of putting 10 megabit Ethernet drops in every room in the dorms. 
which we proceeded to abuse the heck out of and apparently blew up the the university's Jarnet quota uh, by several orders of magnitudes too. I mean, who was surprised by this? In, in retrospect, they really should have known. <laughs> it's interesting when we think back on, on how the access to the internet was metered at the time, right? Because my family wasn't going to sign up for AOL. My father was a professor at the university. Go Lutes! And, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it was a free local call into a free internet connectivity service on a 2400 baud modem with a squeaky squeaky sound and um um so at the time like it wasn't any investment on our side to engage with this but then i i too spent a year in england in, in university and then i think back on that i didn't have internet in my dorm room at all i had to go to the computer lab to engage with the emails um yeah. so that was my second year where i had a zip drive with 100 megabits 100 megabytes of disks and there was one of the labs that had zip drives also. And that was how I would download the internet and take it home with me. I didn't even have a laptop there, I don't think. It's, when I think about it, it's preposterous, right? Like it was just, I was a CS major with no laptop and no internet in my room in 1995. Um, yeah. What I did have in my room, though, was was far, far scarier. So there you go. Yeah, we'll go into that off the air. But okay, so my item is kind of related. I have a deep hatred for the modern web front-end stack. It's just too complicated. Because in those heady days of the 1990s, you could view source on a web page and it would make sense and you could read it and you could learn from it and you could you know, download it and alter it and see what your changes did. And that was how I learned web stuff. I still have somewhere in the shelves right above me right now an HTML 3.2 manual that I bought. Uh, with all its newfangled stuff like uh, tables. Yes. <laughs> it was a good time. The blink tab was real hot then. Oh, Marquee as well. Uh, but but Marquee was evil because it was only an internet explorer. And we're, we're all Netscape Navigator kids on, <laughs> on my team. <laughs> Where are standards when you need them? Exactly. And these days it's all 27 different frameworks that you have to install. And there's JavaScript running on the client and also somehow on the server. And... Uh, CSS being abused to do unnatural things. And I don't want to have to deal with React, Angular, whatever. Can I just write a, a document in, you know, a BB edit and save it with a .html uh, on the end and load it up? Were you the one who was like, Notepad is the only way to go? If you even use write and with the built-in carriage returns and line wrapping, you are a schmo? <laughs> no, VI. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't even like, I think you're right. You know, obviously I'm going to agree with you because I was, I was a very, very piss poor front end developer for 45 minutes of my career. Right. Just terrible, terrible. Let's not be, let's not even mince words. I was awful. My boss at the time, um, may he rest in peace was a lovely man who essentially was like, how do we get you out of coding? Cause that's maybe not where your life's purpose this is. This is not your future. <laughs> this is not what's going to work for you. But I remember I was in Dreamweaver. Shout out to Oh, Dreamweaver. Dreamweaver. Yes. And and you you would essentially block the thing out in Dreamweaver because it would build the, the damn tables for you. And then you flipped to code view and executed the rest in HTML, right? Yeah. And and the fact that they colored the the tags in Oh the syntax coloring was amazing. Yeah, oh. that was my first exposure to that. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, to feel that joy again with anything in my life. Exactly. And, and these days it's just so complicated. So either you just work at the very t tippy top end of abstraction, 
uh, like Buffer, one of my very favorite services, they just launch a new start page thing. And you just drag and drop blocks around, blocks of text, not code, uh, around in your web browser. And that creates a, a web page. Or to get beyond that, it's just a huge jump to, to go one level deeper that I worry that lots of people won't. And then you get these ridiculous things like the story in uh, the news of the last couple of days is, I think this is uh, Missouri, MO. Is that right? Yes, yeah. that's Missouri. The show me state. I just wanted to put this is show me state. Well, some journalist made the mistake of asking his web browser to show him uh, the, the source code of some state uh, government service. And that included some social security numbers embedded in the HTML source code. Yes. And so he did the right thing. He alerted the state government authorities uh, that, you know, this is a thing that you probably shouldn't be doing. Uh, and their reaction was to call the cops and the massive press conference in which the governor accused him of a multi-step hacking process uh, to extract restricted data from a government system, which, of course, has triggered everyone to dust off their 1990s hacking stickers, view source is not a crime, and so on, which is amazing. I love that. You all have access to the Missouri Social Security numbers, folks. It's available to you now. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> Just so you know. It's it's crazy how I, I think that the, the piece that's surprising maybe to me about that is that we are now, you know, decades into the internet, decades into view source, and a governor and, and perhaps less the governor, but more the audience of the governor of a state in the United States doesn't have even that baseline understanding of how easy it is to view source on a web page, which is just really not a thing. It's a button that has existed in most humans' lives for decades. <laughs> and, you know, even taking away the benefits of the doubt and assuming that uh, the governor is being uh, mendacious, I have no opinion. I don't even know which party he's from, although I can make a guess. Um, he is also making the assumption that this will this claim will not be laughed out of the room by his audience. Right. And so there's sort of a subset of nerds who are laughing and you're thinking to yourself that shouldn't that be the bulk of the population by now? Shouldn't most of us be like, interesting, you're going with that story, governor. Okie dokie then. Right? And it's it's just fascinating to me how little um technology understanding has permeated, even though technology use is ubiquitous. Oh, yes. I remember this is a couple of years ago now, uh, two companies back. And if you look at my LinkedIn, you can now work it out. Uh, but I was amazed to see one of our salespeople with a spreadsheet open on the screen, the pricing spreadsheet that we had. This was pre-ubiquitous web apps and a desk calculator that he was using to calculate. And it was like a 10% discount, not, not some complicated calculation. So already the fact that you need to calculate to calculate 10%, right, fine. But you're in a spreadsheet. It has the ability to do calculations. That's what we invented it for. Oh, oh, I see. They were they were using a calculator to support their spreadsheet work. Yes, and then typing the the, the result from the calculator back in. I have I have feelings about that. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Holly. And this okay. was a, you know an IT company, so a software salesperson was in this position. So. It's a good reminder, let's say, it's a salutary reminder that uh, when we on the inside are perhaps overcomplicating things, I would say, uh, we are leaving behind substantial chunks of the population. Certainly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we're sort of on this web topic. Do we want to talk about 
other web apps that have done us dirty? Oh, yes. Well, let's talk about web apps. Uh, I have hatred for rich web apps because I would rather have just rich apps. But so the specific example that I actually had in the show notes is Google Docs, and that has a nice segue with this uh, previous topic. Because for those of you who didn't know, if you've ever received a Google Doc that's uh, security restricted, it will actively prevent you from copying text out or right-clicking or anything like that to pop up a little banner. Problem is, of course, this is the web. It's already sent you the text that's sitting right there in your browser's buffer. So once again, you can view source and you can extract this laboriously protected text right from the source <laughs> element. And, you, you know, it'll be misformatted in horrible ways, but you just paste it in somewhere else and you can fix it at your leisure and then do all of those things that you've just been forbidden from doing, which is kind of a symptom of the problem. We're overcomplicating this whole experience. At this point, would it not just be easier then instead of trying to manhandle web browsers into doing something they were never designed to do, just release an actual app. And since you have to do that anyway for platforms like iOS that don't allow this sort of rich web app, at that point, just make fat apps once again. Uh, we're not fat shaming apps on this show. Uh, <laughs> we, like, we like native apps. They, they let you do things. They don't die horribly if something happens to your internet connection. They won't pop up little buttons. Again, taking us back to the 1990s, designed for Internet Explorer 3.0 uh, because it has the marquee tag. It's, I hate web apps. Uh, give me a choice. I will always, always take the local app. And I wish people would stop trying to be clever and smoosh web apps into things like Electron uh, so that they'll they'll pretend to be desktop apps. We can tell. We know. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're invoking a lot of feelings in me, Dominic. Um, <laughs> firstly, I just want to say I, I entirely agree. But l- let me just rant about a couple pieces of this that, that have really irked me. Firstly... Oh, yes. I use Chrome almost exclusively. You can judge me. It's fine. Um, I use it on all of my devices. And I also have apps on some of my devices. And it bugs the hell out of me that the password settings that are saved in Chrome don't log me into the thick app associated with the same technology, right? So I'm constantly thinking, well, shit, I've got to go log on to this sucker in a web browser. And because that's the only place that I can go ahead and book this appointment, because the app itself doesn't actually remember the credentials I put into the website. And I know that that's not an easy problem, but it is so incredibly irksome. They are essentially the same experience. So that's one thing that, that the second thing that is really frustrating to me. So I have a side hustle, not just as a podcaster, but also as like the um, creator of Google slides once a week for a friend mm-hmm. of mine who is a, a, a pandemic virtual minister. And so, you know, she's got to do her, her virtual services on Sunday mornings and she needs Google slides for that. And I, for me, you know, Dominic and I have spent years producing PowerPoint slides and making a set of slides takes us 15 minutes for other humans. It turns out this is not a native skill set. Um, and so I turns just out, it. turns out, I thought this was just really um, fundamental, but it turns out it, it isn't. And so I just, and we've all stuff. sat through the results when it isn't, it's really, a, you know, there's a lot of, um, when you're doing, when you're animating a hymn, like it takes a little bit of time. Right. And so I, I Oh, I that's, that's this week's frustration. Google Slides, it turns out after a certain point, if you add too many animations to a slide, it screws up the, the sides panel where you see the animations and it just goes completely haywire. Yes. 
if this were a native app, it would not have been allowed out because it's a web browser. We somehow accept it as like, oh yeah, that's a weird rendering bug. It's a bug, fix it. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll do you one worse. On the iPad, which I have to use to edit these slides because my, my corporate laptop does not allow me to live in the Google world because that would be a security risk. Also PetFinder, a security risk. And so I, I go to my iPad to edit the slides with the native app for Google Slides, which doesn't support animation because I don't know why. And so then I have to take my son's Chromebook and go into the browser-based Google Slides tool to build the animation in the broke-ass version that you just described. And all of this is a terrible user experience. That's terrible, yes. When I make slides for myself, so I used to be a hardcore PowerPoint user. I then discovered Keynote. If you don't have to collaborate with other humans who are using PowerPoint, then Keynote is actually amazing. It, it works differently than PowerPoint. It'll take you a minute the first time. If you build one full deck with Keynote, I swear you won't go back. Google Slides is is the worst of all the Google, whatever it's called, Office Suite thing. Google Docs, it has its place. It's fine. If you need to work with a bunch of other people on something that's iterating rapidly and you want comments in the sidebar and whatnot, Google Docs is actually pretty decent at that. Don't try to format anything. It'll just fight you. But Google Slides, it doesn't doesn't even do that. It doesn't give you revisions. It doesn't let you suggest changes. Even getting it to add a comment, you, yeah, it's a multi-step process. The governor of Missouri is drafting a, a speech around that already. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's the worst. It's the worst. Down with Google Slides. You yes. know, they do, they do these experiments with us and we give them so much rope because they're Google, right? And this is actually takes us back to Google Reader, which we gave them so much rope because they were Google. And, and I even remember when I got my Gmail account, I was at IBM. So this was like a good thousand years ago. And, and it was amazing that we got, you know, I knew somebody who knew somebody and I got an invite to a Gmail account and we were willing to put up with so much garbage with their beta versions of stuff because it's Google and partly it's- And they iterate. Yeah. They iterate and it's fine. But then you reach this point where you're like, actually, the universe is using Google Slides. Can you possibly make it just a little bit better? Because now at this point, it's not beta anymore. Yeah. And it would also be good if uh, you didn't kill services every five minutes. Right. Google Reader, whichever messaging products they've killed this year, I've lost count. <laughs> right. I, I, I just stop using it. I just don't trust their... Anything that actually ends up becoming a systemic decision on my part, I refuse to engage with because I don't know if it'll be around tomorrow. Yeah, and and that is a factor in the enterprise world as well. We we hear that all the time that people have concerns about Google's enterprise products, which are a, a whole other kettle of fish and uh, really cool for what they do. Uh, but people have concerns. They say, you know, is this going to get killed? And the Google people I talk to on the partner side, they're like, no, 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 no. We use this stuff internally. It's not going to get killed. But on the consumer side, they're killing messaging services every five minutes seemingly for fun and then launching a new one. And it, that rubs off on the rest of Google. And it's unfortunate. It does. It does. It's interesting. It's a, a real interesting evolution for them. All right. So... We've lambasted a series of technologies. I have one. Do you, should, should I dive in? This one This one is my longstanding rant. I have a longstanding rant. I'll go for um, it. Okay. I, I believe that there was never a year for VDI. Virtual desktops were never a thing. Um, I have been okay. talking about them for 150 years. I once had a, the pleasure of working with a VDI company when I was a consultant. Um, and it was always going to be the year for VDI next year. 
right? There was always going to be the use case next year. And while I understand that- um, Next year in virtual Jerusalem. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And there are very specific use cases where VDI is is necessary, Um, just in terms of, I would say, remote connections to to larger applications, things that are essentially um, consumer-based terminal emulator environments, stuff like that. Absolutely. All in. I think that's real. There was never a time when somebody was going to put a streamlined box on your desk and a monitor and tell you to connect to a centralized operating system somewhere so that you don't actually have to run any kind of OS locally. Like that's not a thing. (laughs) It's never going to be a thing. And I don't know why we wasted so much money thinking it was going to be a thing. But on the other hand, also, isn't that what we were just talking about? We ended up doing VDI sort of, it's just, we have big, chunky, multi-purpose machines that most people use to run one thing, which is their web browser. And in that web browser, they're accessing remote services through a thin client. It's just we happen to build a really, really thick client to run the thin client on. You think so? Isn't that how most people use, like Chromebooks? Chromebooks can only exist because most people live their lives inside web browsers anyway. So the Chromebook strips away... Everything the but the web browser, yes. Sure, but 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 let's think of the use case for Chromebooks, and maybe I'm fully misunderstanding it, but it feels to me like a personal user thing. I've never seen widespread use of Chromebooks in business environments, apart from potentially like point of sale devices and things like that. If you're in a business environment and you have a Chromebook, it just it feels like there's not a time when that's Sure, for for users, for consumers. But then when you think about consumers, they don't need a VDI teleport environment anyway, right? We have a Chromebook. We go to the internet. I'm not lacking for... Yeah, you don't need the rest of the desktop. I I get that. So, and that's what killed. I was just Googling uh, frantically to try and remember the name of Sun's thin client thing, the Sun Ray, which was this amazing little thing. Uh, At the time, it was described as about the size of a video cassette, which further ages it. And then it ran Java apps uh, semi-natively. It ran a Java kernel on board, and then it would pop up a Sun desktop that could access remote apps hosted on a very expensive Sun server, which was part of what killed it. (laughs) And it's true. I mean, most people didn't need that, and it was at the time that web was beginning to take off. And of course, then there was the distraction of the Oracle acquisition. That was the the final nail in that particular coffin. But certainly, if all you're going to run in the virtual desktop is a web browser, then what's the point? And as we've discussed uh, already, there aren't that many big fat clients out there anymore. It's all thin clients anyway. I don't know. I I used to have a job where I would run locally virtualized desktops and i kept doing that longer than was probably healthy so at one time i needed to do that it was mandated and then i found convenient aspects such as when there was all sorts of horrible windows uh locally executed mandated agents that i had Mm -hmm. to run what i did was i ran linux on the native uh bare metal and all of the windows corporate image lived in a VM. Elsewhere. Exactly. This I could shut down when I was trying to do real work. Uh, so th- there was stuff like that that you could do with local emulation. Would I have accessed my Outlook in a remote virtual desktop? Probably not, to be honest. 
Well, that's the use case is actually not you, right? The use case that is usually espoused is the, um, I'm going to use the words of its time, the secretary booking her boss's travel from her home computer that can't <laughs> access the, so she'll plug in a little USB device. All these words aren't things anymore. And plug in a little USB device that gives her connectivity to a virtual desktop to do the travel changes for her boss from home during a snowstorm, right? And and for those four admins, that was all that was glorious and good in this world. But like, yeah, these days I, they just use trip actions from their personal phone. And the... Right, that's right. There's, there's, but but this millions of dollars were spent on this particular diversion. Yeah, I mean, it's an example of once you buy into the model, you kind of get these blinkers. What we need is to do that, but faster and more distributed and cheaper and when you come at it from that point of view from that very narrow focus then yeah remote vdi appears to make sense and then anyone else in the world looks at it and says but why and they <laughs> they put their heads on the side that way like like a dog that's confused well i feel like it was just a case of of um frankly pedantic product management right where somebody imposed upon a group of individuals that were not them a set of priorities that they didn't understand and created a whole product segment around humans that they never bothered to discuss anything with and that's that's the other problem which is kind of the same issue as your security concerns it, the people who created this thing would never use it themselves they thought it was for, for other people, people who had lesser roles, the admins. Yes. Uh, it wasn't something they would want to use. And of course, the best products, the best hardware is stuff that is created to, to scratch a particular itch that you have yourself, a need that you have yourself. You can take that sort of thing too far. You can assume that everyone in the world has your particular needs and concerns and priorities. And that is very much not the case. I will once again trot out my BOS preview release CD, one of my most treasured possessions, as a memento mori, a, a reminder that the most amazing technology in the land is not going to help at all if it doesn't have an actual uh, use case that is widely accepted behind it. That's absolutely true. All right. Well, we've, we've, we've done four, I think, Dominic, four things. Well, it depends. So we did BitNet, VDI, modern web front end, and rich apps. Uh, it depends if you count the rich apps as a subset of modern web apps or not. But I do have a bonus item that I hate. So we can throw that in there as well. All right. Since you mentioned USB, the USB 3.0 spec, what a mess. What a mess. Uh, nominally universal serial bus. That's what the, the U stands for. And they took something that USB one and two were fairly universal. You, you might notice the difference between one and two, if you needed ultimate speed from a particular connection, but otherwise it more or less just works. USB three and USB C, you now have no idea what any cable will do when it's plugged into any port. It could do anything. It could fly away. <laughs> and they launched these, these ridiculous labeling schemes to try and resolve the problem. And they just made it worse. And it's even more confused. And they're going to throw it all out with USB 4, of course. But at this point, USB 3.0, 3.1, 3.1 Ultra Extreme Rainbow is embedded <laughs> in so much hardware and in so much graphic design for the packaging of that hardware. It's going to be around forever. I mean, it's only been a couple of years since uh, the 30-pin dock cable stopped being a thing. 
Remember, you'd go to hotels and there would be the alarm clock with the 30-pin dock cable sticking yes. out because yes. they thought those fancy alarm docks that you could plug your iPhone into. And you'd look at it with your lightning port and go, what am I doing with this now? <laughs> <laughs> I, but for, for a hot second, that was a real benefit in a hotel room. <laughs> oh, it was great for yeah. about five minutes. And then they really, really regretted that they hadn't leased those. <laughs> well, have you ever been to like a standards meeting, Dom? I don't know if this is something you've experienced before. Mercifully, no. Okay, so I went to one. It was obviously misguided. It was when we were working together. I went to one. I was um, in D.C. with somebody who was managing Fed sector, and I went to a NIST meeting to Ooh, discuss NIST. cloud definitions, right? And, and oh, You told me about this at the time. Didn't you spend the whole time arguing about a comma? They, they did. Like, I mean, I think we were like, and let's look at this first sentence. And then we were essentially just dis discussing. It, I might have been at a grammarian summit. Like, it was amazing. The, the, and, and there was passion behind this there was a lot of feelings the, the group of nerds well, assembled those missed the definitions did get everywhere in fairness i would just tell you that the fact that the most human readable outcome doesn't emerge from this process is not shocking to me anyway <laughs> i and i ended up essentially being like i need a drink and leaving like there's just no way i could engage and not not just engage i couldn't even pay attention like it was it was so unbelievably forest for the trees that I never again look at anybody who says standard and think, oh, a group of intelligent people made a set, a set of sane decisions over the course of a brief period of time. That did not happen. No, this compromise has arrived, through, arrived at through mortal combat and exhaustion. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's uh, as good a place to end it as any. I will continue with my recommendation to attend mongodb.local London in person if you're in London, virtually if you're not. The registration link is in the show notes together with a 50% discount code uh, that you can use to get 50% off if you're attending in person. If you're attending virtually, it is, of course, free. I also have a bonus recommendation. On Monday, there is the Apple event about their new MacBooks, which I'm very much looking forward to because I am due at least one new MacBook. And so we shall see what comes of those. No doubt we will discuss it on the podcast. Otherwise, other podcasts exist. <laughs> Did you have any recommendations this week? I don't, but we'll see next week. Maybe this uh, fancy new microphone I'm using will be my recommendation. We'll have to see how this all uh, plays out after we've... Oh, yes. We didn't, we didn't tell the, the listeners. Well, now we've let the cat out of the bag, but uh, it would have been more interesting to see what feedback we got. But I'll let you know after the edit amazing anyway thanks for listening follow the show on twitter at roll for enterprise or on our linkedin page the theme music is by my good friend renato podesta you can find the link to his website in the show notes also if you're interested in some good music please do send a suggestion for topics and or guests for future episodes and we will talk to you next week mm -hmm.